One of the things that, that was kind of comical to me yesterday, I went into um, the, the farm store up here on Fleet Street. And when I went in, I'm walking around. I got my mask on. Everybody in there has got their mask on. And as I'm walking around, they're playing this song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And I was, I just, I told the cashier, I said, that's such an appropriate song, isn't it? <laughs> she laughed. She's like, Yes. It just feels apocalyptic. It feels like um, the movies that you've seen about the end of the world. And, and so I know that um, I've had different ones ask me, you know, hey, do you think, I even got a message um, early this morning, like 2 o'clock in the morning this morning from somebody that said, hey, do you think that we're seeing the four horsemen of the apocalypse starting to ride? And if you missed, um, I think two weeks ago, I preached on Revelation 6, which talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So if you miss that, go back and listen to it. But I don't believe they're writing yet. I believe this is what Jesus described as the birth pains that are coming before the rapture of the church and before the great tribulation. And um, uh, one of the concerns that a lot of people have, and I think people get afraid of thinking about the end times, thinking about end of the world kind of things, because um, I think pop culture has kind of made the Antichrist and Satan and the beast, I think they've kind of made them the stars of the book of Revelation. But it's not the revelation of the Antichrist that we read. It's not the revelation of the beast that we read. It's not the revelation of Satan that we read. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the star of the book of Revelation. And it only serves to illuminate his greatness. It only serves to put him on display. It only serves to elevate him and make him greater and higher. And so as we read through the book of Revelation, it's easy to get caught up because, man, it's hard to miss. There's a lot of judgment coming. And there's, there's seals, not the er, er, er kind, but the, you know, like a seal, like a wax seal. Uh, there's there's bowl judgments. There's uh, there's there's all of these judgments that come, and as they get unpacked, they get poured out, they get revealed. It's it's hard sometimes to stomach the Book of Revelation because there's just a lot of pain. And then you hit a chapter like Revelation seven, and it's kind of a reprieve. And you see this pat you see this pattern in the Book of Revelation. It's like John gets a revelation, he gets another revelation, and it's like judgment and pain and suffering. And then he'll get a revelation where it's like God's given him a minute to rest and say, okay, hang on, let me, let me give you the good news. Just relax, here's the good news in all of this. And then he'll go back to wrath, wrath, pain, destruction. And, and, and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse until it gets really better, Right? And so as, as we read through Revelation 7, this is one of those passages that kind of gives us a break. It's where God's kind of taking his foot off the gas for John, the revelator. And he says, hey, all right, just, just chill out. It's okay. So we're going to start in, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. And he says, then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even any tree. So, so we, we come into chapter 7, and it says, um, then I saw, your Bible may say, after this, and the, the question becomes then after what? 
after what? You, you, it's hard sometimes with the way that chapter breaks work that it's, it'll start with a question and you're like, I, I, I don't know why well, we got an answer here and I don't even know what the question is. So you got to go back to the end of chapter six to find out what the question is. And this is where, where John in verse 16 says, and they cry to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? And so now John is about to get the answer to this big question to open up verse, uh, verse one. And he says, after this, and, and just, I want you to rem- understand something too. When he says after this, it's not like a a chronological picture of unfolding of events in the book of Revelation, okay? Because this is, he's in an eternal state when he's seeing what he's seeing, all right? And so when it says after this, it means after the last vision he got, he gets another vision. So his last vision left off with, hey, who can stand? Who's gonna make it against these great calamities? And then he gets another revelation, and, and the, this revelation is the answer to the previous revelation. So that's how you read this. And it says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And, and we understand that the four corners means every direction, right? Uh, there's not really corners on a globe, but we think of a compass, right? And a compass has four points. So for every direction that you can conceive of, there's an angel that's kind of guarding that direction from the wrath that's to come. And it says, holding back the four winds. And here's another interesting thing. You've, you've got to go back to Zechariah chapter four because Zechariah has this, this vision of these horsemen coming in the apocalypse also. And when he looks at these horsemen coming, he also refers to them as the winds, okay? And so as, the, he, as he's talking about it, we, most scholars believe that, that John's picking up on this same thing. He's talking about the winds. So again, he's answering this question, who can stand, by going back to the beginning before the four horsemen of chapter six are released. He's going back before that and he's saying, all right, there are some angels that's gonna hold these guys up. They're not gonna be allowed to come and run rampant because when they come, it's gonna be bad and it's gonna be bad quick. So before they're allowed to be released, listen to who's gonna stand. And then here we go with verse two. He says, and I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. Again, he's carrying this seal. Seal represents property, ownership, and protection, okay? So if you had a seal something that was sealed, it represented that you owned it and that you were gonna protect what was yours, okay? That's kind of the ancient context for the seal. And so as, as we read this, he says, he comes with the seal of the living God and he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea. So this angel shows up, it's another angel. So now we got five, five angels in the picture. And verse three says, he says, wait, It seems as though these guys, at least the four horsemen of the apocalypse, are chomping at the bit to bring their destruction. And actually, God is ready. He he wants to release this. Remember, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are a part of God's plan. The coming wrath, the coming judgment is a part of God's plan. And, And here's what I've learned in my life. There are two times when people are most likely to receive Christ. Number one, when they're young. And number two, when something really bad happens. 
You know that the most attended church service in the United States of the last 100 years was on September the 15th, 2001, right after 9-11. Everybody just swarmed to the church. Why? Because there was this national collective, like, man, we're hurting as a nation. We need God, right? And so what God is doing is he's giving people in his mercy, his wrath, so that they will open their hearts to have one more opportunity to know him before, because this is hell on earth, but there's a hell in hell that's coming. And God is saying, you don't want hell in hell. So I'm going to give you hell on earth so you'll change your mind and decide that you're gonna follow me so you don't have to experience hell in hell. That, let me tell you, is God's grace. Because we've got an entire world full of people that are thumbing their nose at God saying, we don't care, we don't want you, we don't wanna know you, forget you. Who do you even think you are to, to tell me how I'm supposed to live? You're the ultimate cosmic killjoy. I don't want anything to do with you. And God says, all right. Now, if you're lucky enough, if you're lucky enough to make it to the great tribulation, God is going to unleash a Holy Spirit can, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna come hard because I wish I could see smiles, but he's gonna, he's gonna come hard so that his wrath will stem the tide of your rebellion. And you'll say, man, I really do need Jesus because what's gonna happen is the rapture of the church is gonna come and all of a sudden you're gonna be driving down the road, callous, angry, hateful toward God, you're going to be driving down the road and all of a sudden there's going to be all these unmanned vehicles. Whoop. What are you going to do? There will be people that will be killed in these traffic accidents. There will be, there will be people who will be doing work and, and, and depending on someone else and they're going to lose their life. There's going to be all kinds of things that are happening. Doctors are going to be evacuated from hospitals and, and nurses and teams of people that are doing life support treatment for folks. And it's just going to be mass chaos. The world is going to explode into global confusion immediately upon the rapture of the church. And in that moment, as pilots are being raptured from their airplanes. People are gonna say, dear God, I was wrong. And in that collective global, oh crap moment, people are going to need to make some decisions and there will be some that will just absolutely harden their heart and say, we still stand against God. How could God do this to us? How could God? And they will continue to shake their face or shake their fist in rage to God and in anger and in rebellion toward God. And they will continue to make their case that God is wicked and they are just. But there will be another group that rises up and they will see that Jesus is the Messiah and that he really is who he says he is, and they will say, yes, I need Jesus. And during those times, this is where we get here. Um, wait, don't harm the land. I'm gonna read the rest of verse three because I didn't get to the rest of it, but it says, wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Okay, how many of you have heard of the mark of the beast? How many of you have heard of the mark of the lamb? 
Okay, so there are two marks, and most people know about the mark of the beast, right? Because it's the one that's in the movies, and it's the one that you're afraid that you're accidentally going to take somehow. You're going to show up at the grocery store during the coronavirus, and somebody's going to throw a chip in your hand, and you're going to be doomed to hell. Okay, it doesn't happen that way. Let me just put your mind at ease. I'm going to be talking about the mark of the beast in the coming weeks, but you're not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast, just so everyone is clear. It doesn't accidentally happen. It intentionally happens, and it intentionally happens, as we read in Scripture, as a part of worshiping the beast. So it's a part of a worship celebration that you are saying, hey, I'm going to give my worship to the Antichrist, and that's how you end up taking the mark of the beast. So that's the deal. So don't worry about like, oh, shoot, I think, I've literally had people say, I think I took the mark of the beast, and I'm like, you didn't take the mark of the beast. You're okay, all right? So just... But the, the less commonly known is that there's a mark of the lamb. And there are some people who are marked by God and separated from wrath. They are, they are protected from wrath. And these folks get the chance to, to kind of push away from all of the chaos that happens because God is literally protecting them. And it says here that he puts his seal on the foreheads of his servant. We don't know if it's a, a, a physical, visible sign. It may be. I, I tend to, when you can take the Bible literally, I tend to take the Bible literally, okay? If, if, it, if the context deserves that it's figurative or that it's symbolic, then we take it symbolically. But if there is a, a literal explanation, I lean towards literalism. Why? Because it says it. Like if it says it in the book, that's kind of what we do. We just, I read the book, I trust the book. It's not led me astray thus far. So let's just keep trusting the book, right? And, and if we look at prophecy, if we look at the way that God has unpacked things throughout history, and we look that two-thirds of biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled, and it's been fulfilled to the letter in its totality, then I think there's some credibility to what we read, right? So as we move on here, he says, And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. It was 144,000, and they were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, so this is where things get um, a little bit tricky if you talk to different groups because there are all kinds of groups that think that they are the 144,000, okay? And some of you may have heard of the 144,000 talked about if you've studied any Bible prophecy at all. Um, And so what we see is there are some groups and you may come in contact with them. Um, the Seventh-day Adventists believe that they're going to be a part of the 144,000. The Worldwide Church of God believes that they're a part of the 144,000. Um, the Unification Church, uh, some, back in the 80s, I think people kind of derogatorily referred to them as the Moonies. Their son, son Young Moon, was kind of their leader. And then uh, famously, when, I don't know, probably in my early 20s, the Branch Davidians and David Koresh, they thought they were a part of the 144,000. Probably most commonly, though, is the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that they are the 144,000. So if you ever get a knock on your door and you got some people dressed real nice that want to talk to you, they're probably going to talk to you about the 144,000, right? And, and I love when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house. That's my favorite. They don't come very often anymore because they actually have a little map where they'll mark if they think that you're unredeemable. And so I've got a little red dot on, on my map. 
But I love talking. I love talking to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I had one guy one time, he came up and he's like, and we're the 144,000. And he started reading and he's like, and I heard how many were marked with the seal of God, 144,000 were sealed from all tribes of Israel. And then he starts telling me how they're going to be. And I was like, okay, that's awesome. But the problem is, is that you're not Jewish. And so, so if it says here in the Bible and then it goes through from Judah and from Reuben and from Gad and from Asher and from Naphtali and from Manasseh and from Simeon and from Levi and from Issachar, I think it's pretty specific about the fact that this is Jewish people. And if you read Revelation 14, it's even more specific. It says that it's Jewish men. And it says that they are, they are men who have never been with a woman. So there's a very specific category of who this is. And again, it's biblically literal. I believe there are some other people that believe differently than I do. But I believe that, again, the Bible is literally saying that this is 144,000 men who are set apart from the tribes of Israel who are going to be evangelists during the tribulation. And I believe that these men are going to cause a global worldwide revival, along with uh, the two witnesses, again, who we'll talk about in a couple weeks. But this is going to be a powerful revival. This will probably be the greatest revival that the world has ever seen because people are going to have these moments where they say, oh man, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. What do I do? And you're going to have 144,000 passionate, zealot men saying, here's what you do. And they're going to share the gospel and people are going to come to Christ in droves. And how do we know that? Well, again, I'll take my Jehovah's Witnesses friends to this because they say there will only be 144,000 people in heaven. And I say, but let's read on just a little bit further. Verse 9 says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count. That would mean more than 144,000 because we literally just counted 144,000, right? And he says, after this, I saw a, a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. Don't you love that picture? Who is standing before the throne and lamb? It's every tribe and every nation and every tongue on the globe is going to be gathered together. The Bible says dressed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they're going to be standing there shouting, glorifying God. I love this power that comes before the throne as the nations are standing before Jesus. Isn't this cool? How do they get there? They get there because there are 144,000 evangelists sharing the gospel with them. And these folks show up before the throne. And these guys, the Bible says, are martyrs. And we, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, just a little bit. But these are just the people that get martyred. But then there's also the people who have died and have gone before and those who are raptured, the church. And, and there are billions of people who have lived throughout history that are gonna be joining in these celebrations. It's gonna be so powerful. And one of the things that I think is so cool about this passage is that this is one of the few passages in Revelation that talks about every tribe and every tongue and every race. And isn't it interesting that in our climate of racial division that we're watching happen right now, we're watching racism happen, we're watching um, all kinds of brutality and violence happen. And, and, and this week, the Lord would have us studying Revelation 7 as I put this together two months ago. Isn't that neat? 
It's only God that puts things together like that. And so let me take a pause here and talk about what we're seeing because this is really, really cool. What was God's design for humanity from the beginning? And I talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, but I think the majority of folks weren't tuned in on Wednesday night. So I wanna just share this because this is God's heart for the races. It's found in Genesis chapter one. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, if you wanna know God's plan, you go back to creation because God created things the way he wanted it and then man jacked it up, right? God designed it and man messed it up. God perfected it and man hijacked it for their own selfish purposes. And so what does God do? In verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make human beings. Who does he make? He doesn't say, let me make make white people. Let me make black people. Let me make Asian people. Let me make Hispanic people. Let me make, right? He doesn't say that. He says, let me make human beings. And now when we make human beings, I'm going to stamp them with something very unique in creation. Let me make them in our image. And so what God created was image bearers. Who do we look like? We look like our creator. We look like Jesus. That's the goal. That's how God designed us. That's what he wanted, rooted in creation. He wanted us to be one. Matter of fact, if you're still questioning, well, that was the very beginning past. Well, how come it is then then Jesus, before he's to be crucified, goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he begins to cry and shout and scream and sweat is coming out of his skins and it's breaking the capillaries in his skin and it's coming out with blood and it's, it's streaming as red blood on his face and body as he's grieving. And what's he praying for? He prays, Father, Make them one as you and I are one. That's the heartbeat of Jesus is unity, unity in the races. And we see the early church doing this in a beautiful and brilliant way. Was there messed up stuff that happened in the New Testament church? Absolutely. Matter of fact, one of the first schisms that we see in the New Testament church was a racial issue between the Hellenistic believers and the Jewish believers. And the Jewish believers were getting more provision than the Hellenistic or Greek or Gentile believers. And so there was this this rift that happened that had to be dealt with. So don't think that racism is a new invention. It's been around for a while. And, And what we see though, is as we go through creation, God makes everyone in the verse 27, he says, so God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And it's interesting because when, when Adam gives his wife a name, what does he name her? He names her Ha-Adam. It means of me. It, he, he literally calls her, this, matter of fact, it's the, the same word that's used to describe the unity of all creation. And so he, he, he is calling his wife, you're a part of me. And then what happens? Well, sin enters the world, right? They eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens when they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Division comes immediately. And Adam says, hey, God, why did you give me a wife? I didn't want a wife. I never asked for a wife. You gave me a wife. So she ate the fruit. It's your fault and it's her fault. I was just standing there, right? 
And so there's division that comes. And then after that, there's this separation that comes because what, what happens is uh, Adam's wife gets a new name and her new name is Eve. That wasn't her original name. That was her name that was given to her secondarily by her husband. And it means mother of all. So he's calling her now. Hey, you're not part of me. You're a mom to them. I'm separating myself from you. Why? Because sin separates. And then we go on to, to Genesis chapter 11 and we get to the Tower of Babel, right? And man unifies in, in sinful arrogance with zero humility. And they say, we're going to exalt ourselves. We're gonna build a tower. We're gonna promote ourselves. We're gonna be the center of the universe. We're actually gonna build this so, th- so high that we go into the heavens and we can then call ourselves gods. And it's in that context that God says, okay, I have to bring some division because you have unified around the wrong thing. You're supposed to unify around imago, the image of God, right? You are an image bearer of mine and I expect you to reflect me. But since you don't reflect me, I'm going to cause you to be separate, separated. So your sin is creating further division. And so what happens? The racists form in this moment and language groups happen and people move throughout and they cluster together. And then these artificial cultures begin to form. Do you know that there is 0.02% genetic difference between the darkest skin person and the lightest skin person on planet earth? 0.02% genetic difference. How many of you realize that is nothing? That is nothing. And we literally come from a common ancestor. We're literally all family. But what has happened is that we've rallied around our culture groups instead of rallying around our faith group. We've, we've called our citizenship based on countries, not our citizenship based on heaven. We are citizens of heaven first. And we are secondarily Americans. We are secondarily Mexicans. We are secondarily Africans. We are secondarily Spanish. Do you understand? This is secondary. And culture is great. I'm all for culture. I love cultural diversity. I got to tell you, I enjoy how limited would we be? Just think about this in terms of what the foods that we we eat are. I'm gonna tell you right now, guys, I do not know what I would do if there were not Mexican food on planet Earth. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know what I would do without Italian food. I love Italian food. I I love African food. I love every kind of Asian cuisine. Do you see, just in our food, there is so much diversity. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. And we're enriched by partaking in different cultures, aren't we? I'm better because we're diverse. I'm better because I interact with you. I'm better because I learn your culture and it helps me grow and see things differently. Over the past several years, I've, I've worked hard, not just to spend time with my black brothers and sisters, but I've worked hard to start reading literature written by African-American writers and listening to sermons and podcasts by African-American writers because their cultural uniqueness in the same country as me is very different. Our growing up experiences have been different. 
Our lifestyles have been different. The things that we have experienced because of interactions with different people groups is different. Our interactions with law enforcement are often different. And so I just, I just need to hear the voices in the stories. Since I've been the pastor here, you guys have heard as long as you've been around, get to know someone's story. Story is so important. Story is so unique. Story is what shifts us and changes us and helps us to grow. Get to know stories. Because when you get to know stories, you get to understand perspectives. And when you begin to understand perspectives, because a lot of times what we assume is, hey, if it didn't happen to me, it doesn't happen. Right? If it didn't happen to me, if I haven't witnessed it with my own eyes, it must not be happening. There are entire groups of people that think that the moon landing is made up because they weren't there. You know who you never have to convince that the moon landing is real? Neil Armstrong. You're never going to have to sit down with Neil and be like, look, it was not staged on a Hollywood set. No, Neil, I'm serious. He'd be like, bro, I know I was there, Right? Your experience of your story is powerful because it represents what you've seen and what you've done. And it becomes a unique thing that you get to share with the whole of us. And so as we look at this, we see how how unity is critical in Acts chapter two. We see the church come together and Pentecost and Pentecost you have the exact opposite of what happened at the Tower of Babel, right? People come together in unity of spirit, circling around the presence and power of God, lifting up the name of Jesus. And God brings all of these languages to help people be unified because now you have the Scythians and the Parthians and the Greeks and all of these people groups coming together saying, hey, we heard our language being spoken and it ministered to us. And so we wanted to come and hear what you had to say. And that day, 3000 people come to know Jesus. Why? Because God reversed the curse of Babel on the day of Pentecost. How cool is that? So now we get to Revelation chapter seven and we see this throne room scene. And can I tell you guys, When you get to heaven, the first person you're going to want to see is not going to be your Aunt Sandy or your Papa or your Uncle Ronnie or you're not. You're going to get to heaven and you're going to go, it's the throne. There's Jesus. And everything in your world is just going to fall away and you're just going to lock, lock your eyes on who Jesus is. And everything else is going to become unimportant. Everything else is going to become background noise because all you're going to see is Jesus. And you're, I, I don't know, I, I tend to cry when I get overwhelmed with the presence of God. And I just imagine that moment when I'm standing there and I see Jesus and I just start to cry because I've lived my whole life for this moment. Everything I am wrapped up in the person of Jesus. I can't wait. Man, I can't wait to be in his presence. Listen to what's gonna happen, verse 10. There's gonna be this unity because what race you are isn't gonna matter in the presence of Jesus. Every cultural identity that you've held on to is gonna fall away in the presence of Jesus. You're just gonna go, 
He's here. He's here. I'm here with them. I can't believe that I'm here with them in the same space. And, and then they were shouting with a great roar. Man, this is going to be a shock to the Baptist, isn't it? Like they're going to be standing in the presence of God and they're just going to be shouting and screaming and roaring in the presence of God. It's not just going to be the, the Kojic folks and the Pentecostal folks. It's going, to be, it's going to be the Catholic believers and the Lutheran believers and the Baptist believers. And, and we're all going to be in the presence of God and we're going to be shouting and dancing and worshiping and praising in the presence of God because we're so overwhelmed by what we're seeing that we don't know how to contain the emotion that we feel. And there's going to be a roar in heaven. And we're all in one voice going to say, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And I really think there's going to be this collective moment where we're all standing there. We're like, how did I end up here? I look at my life. I look at who I am. I look at how jacked up I was on planet Earth. I look at how constantly filled with mistakes my life was. I looked at how messed up I was. How could I possibly end up in the presence of God? How could it be? And I'm going to say, salvation didn't come from me. It didn't come because I was worthy. It didn't come because I was good enough. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. I want you to see what's happening. What is different between the entire time that the angels have been in the presence of God? They haven't yet fallen down to worship yet. This is something that happens uniquely in Revelation 7. It says that the angels who are around the throne fall down with their face to the ground and worship. Why? Because they're seeing the redeemed stand in the presence of God. And our worship is going to so move the angels of heaven that they're going to say, I can't even stand anymore. I can't even, you're right, he is worthy. He is worthy. And they're going to fall on their faces in the presence of God and just worship and worship and worship. Come on, your praise is going to motivate the angels of heaven to fall on their face. And this is what the angels are gonna sing. They're gonna sing, amen, amen, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Listen to this. This isn't even like a, this isn't even like a song. This isn't even like a, a, a conversation. This is, oh man, all I can think to say is blessing. Oh golly, what's the, all I can think is honor. All I can think of is power. All I can think of is majesty. Look at who my God is. That's going to be the throne room scene. I don't know about you guys, but I want to be there. Can we take a 10 second praise break? God, thank you. God, thank you. God, thank you. I worship you. 
I worship you. You deserve all of our praise, oh God. You deserve all of our praise, oh God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, check this out. One of the 24 elders leans over, pokes John in the ribs and says, hey, who are these who are clothed in white? And John says, uh, uh, sir, you're the one that knows. Like, John's surprised by the question because one of the 24 elders who, again, I believe are the 12 apostles and the 12 representatives of the tribe of Judah or the, the tribes of Israel. And so I believe that that is the 24. And one of them, I, I just, let's just, just say this. Let's just say that it's Peter because I think anytime Peter gets a chance to talk, he does. And so I could just see Peter leaning over and going, hey, who are these folks dressed in white? And I think there's a little wink and a nod. And John stammering because he doesn't even understand what's unfolding before him. He goes, uh, um, you know, I don't know, you know, right? That's the affirmative way to say, I have no idea who they are. And listen to what happens next. Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. So who, who are these people dressed in white? Who are these people that are standing before the throne? It's all the people who are martyred, all the ones who said, no, 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 no. We are not going to bow to the beast. We are not going to take your mark. We are going to submit our lives to Jesus. Come what may, we are going to be with Jesus in eternity. And so a lot of people are nervous, man, if the rapture comes and I've got a loved one that's left behind and they didn't know Jesus or they didn't want to come to Jesus, I, I, I just don't know what's going to happen to them. They have an opportunity to know Jesus. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a challenge, but they're going to have the opportunity. And I believe that the, the throne room of heaven is just going to be poured over, overflowing with the people who died in the tribulation. And listen to what it says. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And who, he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty, implying that on earth, prior to their martyrdom, prior to their death, they were hungry. They were thirsty. They were struggling because they didn't have access to food, because they didn't take the mark of the beast. And they says, hey, hey, guys, don't worry. You're never going to be hungry again. You're never going to be thirsty again. Never again will you be scorched by the heat of the sun, for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life and, giving, and of life-giving water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can I tell you something? These passages are meant to encourage. These are, the big word for these are, these are the parousia passages. These are the passages that speak of the return of Christ and the rejoining of humanity to their creator. And they were given to the church in order to encourage the church. Hey, you've been suffering 
but don't worry, it's only for a little while. It's not, it's not, a, um, it's not of little note that these are also passages that, that slaves held on to during the time of slavery throughout history because they would say, it's tough, guys, but it's only going to be tough for a little while. It's only going to be tough for a little while. Hold on. And so we can say to each other, we can say when we watch injustice happen, I know it's tough. We, we probably aren't going to see real justice happen because real justice only happens in the person of Jesus, right? O- only real justice happens because of the gospel. Only real justice happens. You're not going to get true justice in a broken, sinful world. You're just not. But what you will get justice is when the people of God grab a hold of the principles of God and say, we are justice in this world. We will stand. And what we're gonna say is, guys, I know it's hard, but it's only gonna be hard for a little while because one day, one day, come on, one day, we're gonna be in the presence of Jesus. And every struggle, every tear, every pain, every bit of, of, of hurt and injustice that you suffered, it's gonna be, I know it sounds trite right now, but it's going to be worth it when you stand before Jesus and get your reward. Because he is a rewarder. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. I don't wanna leave this time without saying this. You can be a part of the throne room scene. You don't have to go through the tribulation. All you have to do is the scripture says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And the answer is saved from what? Well, saved from the great tribulation for one. How many of you after hearing what you've heard so far about the great tribulation have said, I think I would just be a conscientious objector and and stay out of that whole mess. Okay, the rest of you are good. You know, it's fine. Like if if y'all wanna, you know, I'm I'm not saying, I'm just saying, I prefer not to go through it. And you don't have to. But you also not only get to be saved from hell on earth, but you get to be saved from hell in hell which is far worse because that's where God completely removes his presence. And you hear people say all the time, you know, hell is unjust and therefore God is wicked because how could a good God create hell? Well, let me answer that question for you. How, if we believe that we should have the right to have choices, right? If we believe that we should get to do what we want and write our own rules, you can't have a double standard and say, even though I think I should be able to do everything I want apart from God that I want and live my life apart from God and reject him, why would we think that a good God would force you to spend eternity with him if you've told him your entire life, I don't want you, I hate you, I reject you? How wicked would God have to be to say, no, I want you to spend eternity with me? If your entire life is about, I reject you, I hate you, I don't want you, God would by necessity be unjust and wicked if he said, no, I'm gonna make you come with me against your will. 
He's giving you a choice. And as a matter of fact, he gives the tribulation as another set of choices where he unleashes his wrath in his justice and grace to say, I want you to avoid eternity without me. Remember, it's going to be bad. You think this is bad? It is real bad later. Because what makes hell hell is not that it's intentionally dark, because we know that hell is dark. We also know that hell, there's, there's eternal screaming and wailing and gnashing of teeth and people literally grinding their teeth together for all of eternity, it crying out in agony. But the thing that makes hell hell is not that it's gonna be dark. It's dark because God isn't there to give his light. Heaven is bright, the scripture says, because the presence of God is there. There's no need for a sun because God radiates his light and so it illuminates everything. Matter of fact, in heaven, there won't even be shadows because God's presence is everywhere and there is no shadow in heaven because God's presence so completely illuminates everything. Well, what's the opposite of that? It's darkness. When God's spirit is removed, his light is removed. When God's spirit is removed, his comfort is removed. So everything that gives comfort is removed because that's who God is. And so when God's presence is gone, all comfort is gone. So there's eternal agony, physical agony because the presence of God is gone. Like who wants that? And so, so God says, I've designed this so you can have a choice. And if you don't want me, that's fine. Matter of fact, that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. I want you to have a choice. And the choice is binary. There's, it's either on or off, right? It's either yes or no. There's no maybes. There's no, well, let me think about it. It's yes or no. God, I want you. I receive you. I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. Or God, I reject you. I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. Those are the choices. There is no middle ground. Don't be mistaken. There's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. When you read in Revelation 3, when Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea and he says, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Can I just tell you, God doesn't spit Christians out of his mouth. The word that's used there is literally vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. That does not translate to language that God uses for Christians, does it? God's not saying, hey, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, Christian. No, he says, come, enter your rest. That's what he says to Christians. And so there is no lukewarm. Matter of fact, for the early church, radical and disciple were synonymous. There was no difference. There was no juxtaposition. There was no fine line that you had to walk about, oh, can I do this and still be a Christian? Can I do this and still be a Christian? No, that's not the question. The question is, Jesus, how can I completely give myself to you today? How can I honor you today? How can I love you today? How can I demonstrate your love to the people around me today? Are you gonna be perfect? No. Are you gonna be pursuing? Yes. That's the difference maker. God's not looking to bring perfect people to heaven. He's looking to bring pursuing people to heaven so that when you stand in his presence, you can be perfected. Because it's his finished work that perfects you, nothing that you can do on your own. So today I want to pray with you. And if you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life, I want to encourage you. Hell is a very real place. And I don't ever feel like that hell is the reason you should become a Christian. You know, I, I used to, you know, we used to say kind of tongue in cheek, you know, um, 
pastors when I was growing up, they, they preached hell so hot you could feel it every week, man. And it was like, but then we kind of entered this season of seeker sensitive and everything. And you never even hear hell talked about in church anymore. And I think we're doing a disservice to people because there is a very real eternal reality called hell. And I want to warn you about it because I don't want you to go there. That should not be the foundation of your relationship with Jesus. Fear is never a good foundation for relationship. But let me tell you something. It should wake you up to eternal reality so that you say, you know what? I think I just want to hang with him. And I want to lean in and I want to press in and I want to grow in this thing. So today I want to pray with you. And if you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life, as we bow our heads, I would just ask you, if you want God to be the full commander in chief in your life, would you just slip your hand up? I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you specifically this morning. Amen. Praise God. And if you just want to if you're watching online and you say, man, I, pastor, I just want to pray. I, I want God to really shift things for me. I want you to pray right now. Father God, I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. I don't want to play fast and loose with eternity. I'm betting my life on something, and so I'm going to bet my life on you. Today, Lord, will you forgive me? Will you shift my heart? Would you help me to move your direction? And will you change me? In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You got